pessimism, cynicism, nihilism. So that's tonight's, uh, for me, the topic that makes me giddily happy. <laughs> to best represent for you uh, pessimism, cynicism, nihilism, I'm going to bring up the heavy hitters in those disposition, those views, uh, talk a little bit about them, and talk then about what the Buddhist response is. Um, so let's start off with the great pessimist. Batting number one for the pessimist is in 1818, the great German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. If you are not aware of Schopenhauer, he wrote a masterpiece called The World as Will and Representation. And to save you from reading what is one of the longest and most punishing books of its type, I will summarize it for you. Uh, essentially, Schopenhauer claims in brilliant language that the world is an expression of nothing else other than this brutal, overwhelming will to survive and live at all costs. That all human action boils down to the, this will, this will to survive, this will to keep on living, survivalism. And that every action that we take in some way boils down to this cutthroat, basic... Um, will to keep on thriving as an ongoing entity. So, from the Schopenhauer perspective, there is no such thing, and here's where he gets really pessimistic, there's no such thing as fulfillment in life. Because no matter how much you accrue, no matter how much money you make, no matter how, no matter how many likes your posts get on Facebook, no matter... Uh, what titles you amass, or how many objects you have, you're always left wanting more. Because human beings never really feel that secure, do we? No matter how much we gain, no matter how many actions we take, we are always left feeling still that we could die, that we are subject to abandonment and loss. To use the great quote of Schopenhauer, wealth is like seawater, the more we drink, the thirstier we become. And the same is true of fame. This sentiment is almost identical to the Buddha's eight worldly winds, where the Buddha said, the more we chase fame and money and approval and uh, financial gain and objects and all those things that we try to amass for protection and security, the more we amass the more dissatisfied we become. That's the core teaching of Tana, our craving. And it's not surprising that Schopenhauer's will is almost identical to the Buddha's craving because Schopenhauer referred to himself as a Buddhist. He was one of the very first Western philosophers who actually took the time to read the early translations of the Buddha, and he immediately recognized in some Buddhist language themes that were very similar to his pessimist worldview. The problem is he didn't read deep enough. He just read the parts that sounded like him, and he disregarded the rest. To Schopenhauer, the best possible outcome is to get through life without 
taking all these unnecessary actions that cause frustration. The only break, he said, we get is when we listen to music or appreciate the arts. Then we get a little bit, because he was a European. <laughs> so no matter how bad it gets, if you listen to the opera for a little while, you get a little bit of a rep reprieve. But other than that, he said that life was pretty much a dour, uh, disappointing affair, and he concluded memorably that we all would have been better off if we were not born. So that's about as pessimistic as you can get. Around 30 years later, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche was born, 1840s if memory serves, uh, Nietzsche, a brilliant, 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 nihilist, cynical philosopher. Nietzsche read Schopenhauer and described Schopenhauer as his great teacher. Nietzsche, Nietzsche basically took the Schopenhauer belief of the core drive of human life as this will, but he changed it somewhat, and he changed it in a very profound way. For Nietzsche, this drive that we have, this core animating drive, this impulse, is not to survive, but is to amass power, control, dominance, to become excellent, to become uh, in some way recognized as an expert, to be seen, to be appreciated, to be, to be in some way seen as excellent in one's field. So for Nietzsche, we're not really so much driven by this survive at all costs. We're driven by this desire to really be great and seen as great and appreciated as great, to stand out. And Nietzsche also memorably said that there are no such things in life as facts. Facts and views and morality are simply justifications for whatever we're experiencing, wherever we are in the grand scheme of things. In a way, he's very similar to, his, uh, to the, our contemporary philosophers such as Foucault and other continental philosophers who believe that there are no such thing as historically true beliefs or moralities. Everything is essentially just a justification for wherever we are in our lives. So, in saying that there's no real morality, that nothing is true, Nietzsche, and that people are not capable of uh, really finding any true, absolutely grounded w belief system, Nietzsche is about as cynical as you could possibly get. He's also a nihilist because he denies the existence of any trans-historical true statement. Now, interestingly enough, Nietzsche says something uh, in his Genealogy of Morals, one of my favorite books of Western philosophy. There's essentially two moral philosophies, neither of which are more valid, but they each represent two different types of people. The first is what he called the dominant morality. And those are for people who are successful in the world, who are powerful, who enact all their drives, who enjoy life. 
And that's a philosophy that validates expressing, enjoying life, living for today, not holding back, mastering, pride. There's no role in the dominant morality for humility. There's no role for not exercising one's power. It's all about me, me, me. Look how great I am. Look how much I'm accomplishing. On the other end, there's a second morality, which is for the dominated, those who wind up in subservient positions. And he, say, he says their morality, their worldview, is an inversion of the people who are dominant. Their morality is based on resentment, based on living with regret, based on obedience, concepts of original sin and guilt, and the value of abstinence and not taking risks and waiting for the next life for all the goodies to be amassed. And if you haven't guessed it, Nietzsche says that all of Western Judeo-Christian morality and religious systems are for the dominated. And for Nietzsche, the goal was to become dominant. And so he wrote Zarathustra, the overmensch the master philosophy. And if you're wondering why the Nazis found him so attractive, you haven't been listening close enough. <laughs> so for Nietzsche, the authentic life requires us to ask one question. And it's a famous question. It was his great thought experiment. He said, suppose you were walking down the road one day and a demon came up next to you and said to you, suppose everything in your life you'd have to live as it's been lived up to this moment, you would have to live over and over and over and over and over again without any possibility of change. In other words, you wound up in Groundhog Day, the movie. Would you be happy about that? Or would you fall to the ground and weep and be distraught that you didn't live a different life? So for Nietzsche, the authentic life is the life where we embrace everything that we've done. The pain, the mistakes, the ill-chosen relationships, the faulty endeavors. We have to cultivate what he calls amor fati, loving our life exactly as it is. And for him, that meant embracing that will to power. Because it's only from embracing your will to meet all your needs, express yourself, master, go out into the world and be great, he said that you could possibly love everything in your life. So that's his great question. Would you be happy if you had to live your life over and over and over again without any change or reprieve? Now, in some ways, there's a similarity between this thought experiment and the Buddha's thought experiment. The Buddha's thought experiment goes like this. Don't put off what's important into the future, for who knows you could die in the very next moment. So the Buddha is not saying you might live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever again. He's saying you might die at any given moment. So you should embrace your life right now 
and live is not as if, as Nietzsche said, life is not a dress rehearsal. So in some ways there are similarities. But Nietzsche and Schopenhauer made crucial, I would pose, mistakes that the Buddha did not make. And I'll tell you what their mistakes were and why, as a result, we should not be pessimistic and cynical. Here's what the mistakes were. In both Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, there was absolutely no role whatsoever for human altruism. Caring about your fellow human being played no role in their worldview. For Schopenhauer, it wasn't even really possible. All forms of altruism were masking self-interest. He didn't even believe that people were capable of it. For Nietzsche, he believed that it was a justification for not seeking strength. And furthermore, Nietzsche had a weird Reaganomics-type philosophy. He said, strive for the treasures and the jewels in the world, constrain all things so they flow in your direction, and then eventually you'll let them flow back again to other people out of your generosity. How nice! Nietzsche's view was that the rich give back to the poor because it makes them feel more powerful, and therefore it makes their will to power feel more actualized. That's a pretty fucking cynical worldview, that the only way there's any altruism that's real is by amassing all you can get and then grudgingly giving it back to other people because it makes you feel even more powerful. Now the Buddha realized something profoundly different that neither of these two Western philosophers came to understand. The Buddha intuited a social brain. He intuited somehow what we now have found to be true, and I'll talk about where and how it's been proven, that while the brain, yes, has profoundly survival-first circuits, they're activated very often in the left ventral medial, amygdala, midbrain, that cause us to try to amass and control and get as much things for ourselves as possible. And dopamine rewards us for accumulating. But what neither Schopenhauer nor Nietzsche were aware of was the right hemispheric uh, serotonin and the circuits of the dorsolateral regions of the brain that, and the anterior cingulate that reward us for pro-social actions. Neither because they both grew up, Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, in painful childhoods where there was very little security, where there was very little love, neither had actually been in enough nurturing relationships in their life where they understood that, in fact, deeply embedded in the human mind are pro-tribal circuits that reward us for connecting. Now, why is that? Why is it that we don't just have circuits that reward us for taking care of ourselves, but why also do we have circuits in our brain that create feelings of pride and esteem and joy when we connect in a safe way with other people and we take care of other people? And why is it that we feel shame and guilt and disappointment when we lose connections in our lives? 
Why is it that our brains have these pro-social uh, circuits to them? It's not terribly complex. Human beings emotionally co-regulate. Our great strength is that when we are activated, what do we do? We don't take to the skies with our wings because we don't fucking have wings. We don't dig holes in the ground and scurry into the earth because we don't have particularly uh, claws, and that would look stupid for most of us. <laughs> we don't have shells that we can conceal ourselves in. We don't actually scurry up trees. Human beings survive because we connect. It's deeply embedded in evolution that those of us who, when the shit hit the fan, instead of taking care of ourselves, ran towards other people, checked in, took care of the weak, connected with the tribe in pro-tribal ways, those were the people that survived and passed on their DNA. And so over the course of the 20,000 generations of human beings, we have become increasingly more empathetic over time, more compassionate, more wired to connect. Our species' greatest survival attribute is our ability, when we are in danger, to connect and bond together. When we bond together as a tribe, we are so much less vulnerable to bears, coyotes, etc. We become safer the more we connect. So in our brains, the right orbital frontal, dorsal, lateral prefrontal cortex, and the anterior cingulate have a very powerful uh, circuit that has been established now not only by Lieberman, and Kochiopo and a whole Japanese team of neuroscientists whose names I cannot pronounce for you, that we have over time developed a second circuit that rewards us for connecting. And that's what neither the cynicists or the pessimists ever intuited, that there was something in us that deeply pushes us to take care of each other. And what's even more beautiful is that when you act on behest, behest of yourself, when you take care of number one, when you rush to amass money or objects like everybody else does, like I do, when we do any of these self-serving actions, we get rewarded with a powerful jolt of dopamine, which lasts all of about 30 minutes. And then the new shoes we bought lose their sparkle, and they get thrown in the back of the closet. But when you continually connect with other people in an empathetic, emotionally resonant way where you disclose your emotions and are seen by someone else and they disclose their emotions back to you, it activates serotonin and oxytocin in your brain. And those neurotransmitters don't last a half an hour. They last for days and days and days. And if you continue to connect, you wind up feeling buoyant, safe, at peace. The Buddha says, yes, there is this drive, this tana, this Schopenhauer-like will to survive at all costs. And our job is to put it aside, to not let it dominate us, 
and to balance that need to survive with a second need. What is that need? He called that need harmlessness. He called it generosity. He called it kindness, compassion, metta, mudita, karuna, all of the vaunted Buddhist tools are all about if we want to find peace of mind in life, we connect. That is why the Buddha came up with the most profound, in my view, response to pessimism and cynicism, and why we don't need to fall into either, no matter what's going on in our lives. So, I thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile in tonight's talk.